Well, today we are returning back to the book of Zechariah. Uh, I, I do know that there's a big soccer game on right now. And so I will be looking and seeing who is looking down at their phone and cheering and things like that. Um, do we have any Argentinian fans here? I know. You are? You, I thought I was thinking, I don't know if Brazil didn't. She had no option. Okay. So we have a few Argentinian fans here. We do have a family that uh, the wife grew up in Argentina. Argentina and uh, I noticed she's not here this morning. I don't know what that means here. Any French people? Wow, nobody. <laughs> not a single French fan. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens. Anyhow, we're here. Uh, I'm sure the game will still be on when we're done. Who knows? You never know. I get rolling sometimes. Uh, so let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Lord, we, uh, we are looking forward to hear from you through your word. How remarkable for us to consider a book a couple thousand years old, in this, this case, 2,500 years old, and yet able to minister to us in our present circumstances. Lord, you're so faithful. As you've told us, uh, your word is alive. And Lord, uh, we know sometimes the word can sort of hit our hearts and bounce right off like hard soil, like seed hitting hard soil. And so, Father, we're asking uh, both for you to do it and for the part we play in it, Lord, for our hearts to be uh, open and soft to receive from you. Lord, if there's sin in our lives that we've been harboring, even just with a, a word of prayer, Lord, we ask for you. Lord, to cleanse us from that, that we might walk in the newness of life, Lord, we return from that sin. Because, Lord, we know that as we do that, that softens our heart. It makes it receptive to the teaching of your spirit. It allows the word of God to enter in and to go down deep and to bear fruit. And, Lord, that's not only what we want, that's what we need. We need to be transformed into the image of your son. You've created us for that purpose. And so, Lord, as a, as a small part of that process in our lives, would you use this morning and our time in the word? Bless us, Lord, for having gathered, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are going to be in the second chapter of Zechariah. So go ahead and start looking there. As uh, has been mentioned in both of our two previous studies, Zechariah is a little bit different than some of the other minor prophet books that we've been looking at. It's a little bit longer, uh, 14 chapters, I believe it is, whereas most of them are two or three chapters. Uh, Zechariah uh, had a different style, if you will, of ministry. A lot of the other pro uh, minor prophets, they received the word and they preached that word kind of a message, much like I'm doing right now. Zechariah received these visions, these pictures, that God revealed certain things to him through those pictures. And then he went and communicated those to the people. Uh, and that's how the beginning six or seven chapters of the book, uh, that's how it begins. And when we were last together, we, we began to look at the first two of those visions. Uh, the first being of that myrtle tree with the horses that were in there, and then the second... Uh, being of these four horns and those horns being broken by four craftsmen of sorts. And we spent some time sort of uh, looking at those visions and what those visions mean. But it's very important to keep in context throughout our study 
that we are talking to a, or we're looking at uh, a post-exilic group of Jews, post-exile. And so the, this, the Jewish people, they had been taken off into captivity, into exile, where they were there for about 70 years, but now they have come back into the land. And they've been back in the land about 15 years or so now. And life was still very difficult uh, in the land. It, it had sat uh, barren, I guess you might call it, uh, for 70 years, destroyed, overgrown, all these kinds of things. And it was the job of these people to come in and to rebuild that place. And that, that's a hard thing to do. There was only a small group of them that chose to do it, you remember. They were all given the opportunity. If you, you can still be our subjects, the Medes and the Persians told them. But when you go back, uh, you, you can do all the work there that you want to do, but you have to continue to be our subjects. And only about 10% of the people decided to go back. About 50,000, we'll say, we'll round up. About 50,000 Jews decided to go back into that land and try and rebuild it. And it was very, very difficult, as you can imagine. And pretty soon they became discouraged. Discouraged by so many different things. This is harder than I thought it would be. And they were discouraged and wanted to give up. They seemed like they weren't making any progress. Their efforts seemed so meager when they began to compare it with what they had heard in the past and how the temple looked in the past and now what it looks like. My goodness, why are we even bothering any longer? What kind of an impact are we making? And many of them wanted to give up. And that's where the two prophets, Haggai, the one we just finished studying, and Zechariah, that's when they come in, where they come in. That God sent them to encourage a discouraged people. Very different methods, like we said. Haggai preached sermons to them. Uh, Zechariah, if you will, he told stories to them or visions to them of pictures that he had. And so, so far in Zechariah, we've looked at two visions, as I mentioned. Now, the first that had to do with the horses and amongst the trees and so on, that was designed to communicate that God had been observing the way the Gentile nations were treating his people. And so his people were taken off into captivity to be disciplined. And then God says, I wanted them disciplined, but you went way overboard. You, you seem to enjoy it a little too much. And not only that, now that they're struggling to get sort of back on their feet, you're not doing anything to help them. And I'm taking notice of that. As a matter of fact, you're hurting them. That's the first of the visions. God was noticing how his people were being treated. The second of those visions, God says, and now here's how I'm going to deal with those nations. That's the vision about the four horns, horns symbolizing strength or nations and how those four horns were crushed. And so those two visions, one runs right into the other one. God sees how his people are being treated. God's going to deal with the people that are mistreating his people. Here now, as we come to the third vision, remember there's going to be eight of them total. As we come to the third vision, this also picks up on those first two visions. It's sort of a continuing uh, of the message that God has for his discouraged people. And this vision, as we'll see, it's going to begin, uh, it's, a, it's a dream of sorts, a vision of sorts of a man that is out measuring Jerusalem. He's got a big, big tape measure, and he's out measuring uh, the city of Jerusalem. And it will start in chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read it together. You follow along. It says, Now as I, and I lifted my eyes and saw... And behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him, and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem 
shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Now, if you just flip back a page to chapter 1, look at verse 16. There you see mention was made of a measuring line. Verse 16 of chapter 1, Therefore thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So the idea or this concept of a measuring line has already been introduced in one of the previous visions. Now we have more details on it. We see what it's going to be used for. It's going to be stretched out over Jerusalem. Let's break it down a little bit. Break it down, like the rappers like to say. Uh, verse 1, And I lifted my eyes and saw and behold a man with a measuring line. Now who is this man? Well, scholars differ. Some think it's an angel uh, in the previous vision, one of the previous visions, uh, the, um, the, man, the men that were sitting on the horses, etc. They, they seem to stand for angelic beings. We know that one of the men in the previous visions stood for not just an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. So some scholars think it's an angel, some think it's the angel. There's other scholars that think it's actually a picture of Zerubbabel. Now, you remember that name, Zerubbabel, perhaps. We've learned about him, particularly in our study of the book of Haggai. At the time that these things are occurring, Zerubbabel was the governor of Jerusalem or of Judea, of the Jewish people that had come back to the land. And there are some scholars that think it's Zerubbabel. That's actually who I lean toward. But it's really not as significant who the man is, but what the man is doing. And so we see that this man here is measuring the city of Jerusalem. That's what's actually important. Not who so much as why. why. What is he doing and why is he doing it? Well, it tells us in verse 2, he's, that's what uh, Zacharias said, where are you going? Kind of rude. But he says, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. Now, the picture that seems to be developing is that this man, is he's busy about measuring the city of Jerusalem for the purpose of trying to figure out where all of the people are eventually going to live in and around the city of Jerusalem. It, what it reminds me of, and, I, and I'll explain how I get to that in a moment, what it reminds me of is when a city or a, a municipality, the township of Ewing, something like that, begins to anticipate potential growth that is going to come to that city. And so the city planners will get together and they'll begin to de develop a plan. Where are we going to put all these people? What kind of an impact is that going to have on the roads? What kind of an impact is it going to have in the schools? And they begin to figure all this stuff beforehand anticipating that. I think that's what's going on here. Again, I think this is Zerubbabel. He's the governor. And he's trying to figure out this future day, where are we going to put all of these people? Now, while this is going on, while this man is busy getting ready to measure the city or is actually measuring the city, there's another little scene that is going on on the right side. And that's in verse 3. Notice it involves Zechariah. It says, And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and then another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Go tell that man, what man? The man that's measuring the city, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock that are in it. 
They need name tags. There's a lot of people that are in this scene here. So you basically you have another angel in verse 3 talking to the first angel that was speaking with Zechariah, giving him instructions to go talk to, we'll just call him Zerubbabel, and say to Zerubbabel, you don't need to keep measuring this city because there's going to be so many people it's going to spill out of any walls that you happen to build anyway to contain this particular city. Again, the words are, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. Now, in the time of Zechariah, in the time of this governor, Zerubbabel, it would have seemed pretty peculiar, pretty strange to worry about whether Jerusalem would be big enough to contain all of its inhabitants because they had so few inhabitants. Remember, only about 50,000, 40, almost 43,000 went back to Jerusalem to rebuild it, where it could have had a population of 200,000. And so it was very underpopulated. So it's odd to think this guy here is going to be worried about, are we going to have enough room for everybody? And where are we going to put everybody? And are the roads going to be enough for them? And so on. The Lord, however, in this vision to Zechariah, reveals a time where there would very much need to be a concern of Jerusalem's leaders as to where are we going to put everybody. And so in this vision, this man was sent to Jerusalem in order that he might measure the city, that it would be large enough for the multitude, that's the word that's used in our verse here, the multitude that God was going to bring in. And he's busy worrying about it, only to be told, look, don't, don't bother. There's going to be so many people, you're not going to be able to contain them anyway. Now, in ancient times, walled cities were a must. There's probably parts in the world where it's a must today. But in ancient times, walled cities were a must. And if you had any intention of keeping the people in the city safe, you would have a wall put around that city. And every night, there'd be lots of gates, but every night those gates would be closed. There'd be people at those gates, maybe some people on the wall, and their job would be designed to protect the inhabitants inside of that city. And so the fact that Jerusalem will become a village without walls, as it's um, called here, it's communicating two things about this day that it is speaking of. Number one, so many people, you won't even be able to contain them inside of a wall, so don't even bother measuring it. But number two, it's going to be a, a time of peace and safety for that city as well. That rarely describes the city of Jerusalem. It will in that day. And so it's going to communicate the city's population growth, but it will also communicate that that growth will come in conjunction with a period of peace and safety for the city. Verse 5 explains why. Well, how can that be? Come on. Ancient world, you got to have a you got to have a wall around the city. Well, what if you had a wall of fire all around the city? That might change things, right? Look at verse 5. He says, And I will be to her, Jerusalem, a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Sounds a lot like the Shekinah glory of God, doesn't it? Remember the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day that would lead the children of Israel? You remember when the temple was dedicated to the Lord during the time of Solomon that the Shekinah glory, that's what it's called, the, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God came and filled that place and everyone kind of had to get out of uh, its presence or the presence. A wall of fire all around and I will be the glory in her midst, it says. The Lord promises in this day that he is speaking of, which we'll come to in a moment, what I think it is, 
the Lord promises that he will be the protector that the people need. That's a man-made wall. He himself. So times were difficult in Jerusalem at the time of the writing of this book. I've said that a few times already here. But this vision meant to encourage a discouraged people was that the day was coming when the city would be established at last and when it would have no need for material walls any longer because the Lord himself would be their protector. And so we have then vision number one and vision number two. Remember those two visions, they spoke of that millennial kingdom, that glorious kingdom of God. Here, this one continues there as well. And remember, in that millennium kingdom, the millennium thousand years, in that thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, he will be seated on his throne in the city of Jerusalem, and he will rule and he will reign with righteousness. And that's what this vision here is speaking of. It's speaking of the millennial kingdom, the time of peace, when Jerusalem will spill out of its walls and won't have to worry about other nations because there will be one ruling from Jerusalem whose impact will reach the entire world in what we call the millennial kingdom. The millennium is a central theme of the book of Zechariah. We'll come back to it again and again and again. And so remember, in that day, the glory of Israel. In Zechariah's day, who are we? What are we doing? Why are we even here? Why are we even bothering? You see how that could be a very encouraging message to them? That's the whole purpose of it. And so once again, we have in our study of the minor prophets, we have a near-term fulfillment. This certainly spoke to Zechariah and Zerubbabel and Joshua and Haggai as an encouragement. You keep doing what you're doing, but it has a far-fulfillment which speaks of many, many years later, even into our future, in which we're talking about the glorious millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. If you would like to read a little further in your Bibles about that 1,000-year reign, Revelation chapter 20 is a good place where you can go and where you can start. All right, Revelation chapter 20. All right, so the meaning of this third vision. There's coming a day... Jerusalem will be abundantly populated, it will be prosperous, and it will be safe. Three things you could hardly say about Jerusalem in the time of Zechariah. Amen? You with me? I'm going to take a sip of water. Chapter 2 continues. Now what we're going to see, look in uh, verse 6, you'll see there's a command there. It begins, up, up, flee. There's going to be two exhortations in the next four or five verses. Uh, commands, exhortations. You should really do this particular thing that are given. The first one of those exhortations is verse 6 and 7. So let's read it. It says, up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. So this is the first of those exhortations. Now, uh, it's an exhortation for those Jewish captives that chose to remain in exile to come back to Jerusalem and its surrounding locales. Again, remember, when uh, Cyrus was the Persian emperor, when he took over, we've also learned about uh, Darius, who was sort of like, a, if you think of the president and a governor, he was kind of like a governor of the Medes in the Persian Empire. When they gave permission to the Jews to return to the land of Israel, 
only about 10%. I've actually read a couple commentators that said as low as 2% of the population came back to the city of Jerusalem. This exhortation is to the other 98%. He says, up, up, flee from the land of the north, that's Babylon, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens declare the Lord. And now he's calling them back to the land of Jerusalem. He says, up, escape to Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. They're interchangeable. Escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. And again, so many of them had chosen not to return to the promised land. They're now exhorted, it's time for you to return to the promised land. And as I read that, I think, how gracious of God that he would extend an invite to them. You know, you think about that parable in the New Testament, which speaks of where, you know, the master of the house threw a big banquet, and like nobody came, you know, and he's like, well, where's everybody at? It was like 50 people there or whatever, and we had room for 1,000. And he says, go out and invite some more people. And he says, you guys coming? Oh, I can't come. I don't want to come. Leave me alone. Don't bother me or whatever. And he's like, I can't believe this. And he said, look, go out, find whoever is out there. Find the poor, the destitute, whoever. anybody that would like a good meal, just bring them in. And they fill the place up with those individuals. Now, I think of the master being so kind to go back to the people that he invited the first time and said, you know, did you forget? We're having this thing. You should come. It's going to be great. And they turn him down, and he keeps going back and asking him again. I don't think that's me. That's not my attitude. You don't want to come? Fine. Just so you know, you're never being invited again. You know what I mean? Like, that's my bad heart and my attitude. And here is God so gracious going back to them again and again and again and again and inviting him. And here they, they basically said, oh, we could have freedom in Jerusalem? Nah, we like it here as captives in a foreign land. We'll just stay here with these foreign gods or whatever. And it's like, all right, well, then you're done. I'll move on to a new group of people. But God is so kind, so gracious, so merciful, he goes back to them again and he says, come. I want you to come. This is where you need to be, and I want you to be there. Come, up, up, flee from the land of Babylon. Now, please notice this, though. You would think, like, what do we do? We grab them by the ear, we drag them back. Now, get in there and enjoy it. I don't know if you do that, but, you know, that's kind of what the nuns did to me when I was in, in elementary school or whatever. And so, you know, we think, like, we'll force them to come back. God never does that. He doesn't force them. He invites them. He invites you. Maybe you've wandered a little bit. Maybe you've drifted a little bit from the Lord. He's not going to force you back to himself. Now, he may very well make circumstances such where you're thinking, what am I doing? Like the prodigal son. And you'll make the choice to come back. But he always extends the invite to you. And he does that here with them. He says, up, up, flee, return, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Now, Babylon is one of those words, I, I wish I looked up how many times, that appears over and over and over again in our Bibles. And sometimes when we read about Babylon in the Bible, it's talking about a little, literal place that was named Babylon. Other times it's speaking figuratively, and it's using the name or the term Babylon. And so I think here we have a situation where it's actually both of those where it's actually speaking of a literal place where those people were called to come out of Babylon, but it's in, a, in another way, it's speaking of a figurative place as well. If you think of Jerusalem as sort of the city of God, the, the Bible kind of paints that picture, Babylon would be almost the opposite. It's the city of the world or the worldly system. 
that goes its own direction. The first time that we're introduced to what will become known as the city of Babylon is in Genesis chapter 11. That's the story of the Tower of Babel. Maybe you remember that story. You've heard of that story. And there, as you read that, it was a group of people deciding to build this structure that would extend up into the heavens. It's not just about, well, we want to build a big building. It was about them taking control of their lives and doing their own thing. You can read the whole context of it. God, we're not interested in what you have to say or anything that you would have to do in our lives. Leave us alone. And that's where the Lord intervenes. And that's the spirit or that's the attitude of the figurative Babylon that we see in our scripture here. And the Lord is saying, he's saying, I'm calling you out of that. You don't want to live there. Come out of that, submit yourself to me, and discover the very reason why you were created. We were created to be in relationship with God. Every one of us in this room, everybody outside of this room was created to be in relationship with God. The vast majority of people aren't. And many times as we look at our own lives, my own life included, as we look at our own lives, we think, you know what, I've lived my life today as if I haven't been in relationship with God. We don't give him any thought or any mind. He's calling them to another place. Zechariah is a book that is very, very similar to the book of Revelation. Similar themes that are traced through both of those books. I'm actually a little more familiar with the book of Revelation. Maybe you are as well than I am the book of Zechariah. But as you study both of those books, you see so many of the parallels that are found in, in these two books. The book of Revelation, it begins with these words. It's the first verse of the book of Revelation. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants, notice the things that must soon take place. Soon there, the, that word can be translated quickly. Like when they start, look out. They're going to get out of the way because they're going to bowl you over. And so these are the things which must soon take place. And the rest of the book of, of Revelation, we've studied it together here about 15 years ago. We probably need to do it again soon. But the rest of the book will begin to talk about some of those things, the rapture of the church. We read about that in Revelation, the emergence of this antichrist figure. You've heard those terms, no doubt. The false prophet that will deceive many people in the last days. All of the heavenly judgments, the bold judgments, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, that are found there, all of those heavenly judgments that are poured out on the earth. Other things in Revelation, the mark of the beast, persecution, mass martyrdom, all of those things we read there. Those are the things that will soon take place or quickly come about that is revealed to Jesus and he delivers it to John. Each of those things are chronicled as you make your way through the book. What's also presented in our study of the book is that the location from which this Antichrist is going to rule is the city of Babylon. It's no coincidence, I don't think, that the ancient city of Babylon was recently unearthed by archaeologists. I just find that intriguing um, here after a couple thousand years of not being in the picture. We're just about a couple thousand years. Now, scholars differ as to if the Antichrist is going to rule from that rebuilt city of Babylon, or if he's going to rule from another city which will figuratively be like that ancient city of Babylon. Again, as I said earlier, I, I don't see any reason why it can't be both of those instances. It will be the ancient city rebuilt, and it will be of the spirit of that ancient city that was once, 
once on the earth as well. Well, that being said, the words then from Zechariah about coming out of Babylon, then they are exactly uniform with the words in Revelation chapter 18. So chapter 18 of Revelation, you can read the whole chapter on your own. It says this, Then I heard another voice come from heaven. This is, and read the whole chapter. It's speaking about the city of Babylon that the Antichrist will rule from. He says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come up out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Same message that we see, up, up, flee from Babylon in Zechariah chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And so whether we are talking about the Jewish exiles in the 500s B.C., or we're talking about a yet future group of people that are living during the days of the Great Tribulation, as it's chronicled in the book of Revelation, or we're just simply talking about you and I, that find ourselves in the midst of a world that is given over to sin, that are hoping not to be stained by that sin. The call is the same for all three of those groups. And that is, come up out of her. Memorize that. It's one of those like phrases you can replay in your head as you go about your day. And as you find sort of the world system pressing in on you, all you need to tell yourself is, you know what, yep, come up out of her. Come up out of her. You've heard the expression, we are in the world, but not of the world. Babylon represents the world. The world system that stands opposed to God and his ways. And thus, God is perpetually calling us to come up out of her. Lest we take part in her sins and lest we share in the consequences of that sin. I wonder. Have you taken inventory of late of the way in which the world is having an impact on your soul? Have you done that? Do you do that with regularity? I think you should. If you haven't, you need to. Because the world system, it's sort of like those uh, escalators in the airport, not the ones that go up, the ones that just, the moving walkways. And it's sort of like, and maybe you've done it, you get on the reverse direction or whatever, but if, as long as you keep moving, you can hold ground and maybe even gain ground. Are you with me? Am I like, did I lose you here? But the, but the moment you sort of, you stop or you take it easy, you lose ground very, very quickly. And so the world system can have that effect on you. So think about those that don't know God, those that aren't interested in living a life that is honoring to God or pleasing to God. Think about sort of what tends to characterize those individuals? Well, it tends to be a lot about me and self and how will this be good for me? Well, that, that's not a God message, is it? No, it's about dying to self. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's about dying to self. It tends to be about temporal pleasures. I want to be pleased now. I'll worry about other stuff later. Certainly, if there's an eternity or a heaven after this or hell after this, I'll worry about that later. I'll focus on this. And yet we're called to have our eyes firmly fixed on heaven and not on the things here or the earth. So do you see how the world system, it's just opposed. It doesn't make them like they're such bad people. Well, they are, but it doesn't make them like such bad people. It's just it's a different system. And when Jesus Christ enters into our lives, he changes our hearts and he gives us a new perspective on things. But here's the thing. We're living our lives on that escalator. 
Is that what it's called? Moving walkway. We're on that moving walkway. And the moment we sort of stop, we're going to find ourselves drifting back and adopting some of the thinking and maybe even some of the practices of this world system. Jesus speaks to that. He says, up, up, come up out of her. Flee that system. When I was in high school, college, I guess, I don't know. It was sometime in my life when I was younger. <laughs> I worked at uh, the, the mall, the Quaker Ridge Mall. And I worked in a retail store. And part of my job was to make sure that the, the shelves uh, were stocked, that they looked neat, the, the racks and all of that stuff were stocked and neat. Well, that was fine in June when like three people come in all day or whatever. But when Christmas time hit, it was a zoo and it was crazy. And my boss would be like, this place is a mess. I know, I would say, I can't keep up. These people are lunatics here. And one of the things that would begin to happen and develop is we would lose control, so to speak. We would lose track. And so people would come in and they would say, you know, do you have a, those white hooded sweatshirts? You were like, I have no idea. They used to be right there, but I have no idea any longer. Because people would take them and they'd throw them in directions and ball them up and put them in a corner or something or hide them. They can come back later, like their own little layaway kind of thing or whatever. So it was just sort of crazy uh, in the room. What we would need to do, and we normally did it during the day when it was only a couple people in at a time, but when there were these masses of people coming in a Copper Rivet, remember Copper Rivet? It was like a Mercer County surf store kind of thing. It was really, it was sad. Uh, but I worked there and I was very proud of it. Uh, what we would have to do is either come in early or stay late, reorganize everything, count it all up again, and take inventory. And that's always served in my own life as just this personal, helpful reminder. Life can be crazy. I can find myself being dragged in all kinds of directions. I don't even realize, but I sort of stopped, and I'm looking around, and I'm drifting back on the moving walkway. And I need to stop from time to time, take inventory. All right, what are the crazies? What kind of effect did it have on me? And the place that I do that regularly is I have a morning quiet time. And it's just a time to sit with the word of God and put out everything else and not worry about it. And I get up early so I'm not rushed and I have to be to that next place. And I just take time with God in his word. And he ministers to my heart and he brings me back to him, so to speak. We start folding the clothes and getting them back on the shelf. Other times, and another very important place in my life for that, and no doubt in your life as well, is what we're doing right now or what we do on Wednesday nights, or what we do on Fridays, or Thursdays, or Tuesday afternoons, when we gather with some other Christians. And what that does is, it brings everything back into perspective again. And all of those messages that I'm hearing that are saying, be selfish, and do your own thing, and don't worry about that, and who cares about heaven, and these kinds of things, it kind of puts them out, and I get to hear those voices that I need to be hearing. And sometimes we need to do it where we completely get away, and we go off on a retreat, for two days or three days or longer than that, perhaps. And we really shut out the noise because sometimes it takes a lot longer than 30 minutes in the morning or 15 minutes in the morning or an hour Bible study on a Sunday morning. And we just have to get away to hear from the Lord. But those are crucial, those times, they're crucial in our walk with the Lord because this world system, it will have its effect on us. And unless we're actively working against it, we'll find we're being influenced by it, which is, of course, not what we would want for ourselves, and it's certainly not what God wants for us. 
And that's why he pleads with them. He says, up, up, free from the land of the north, escape to Zion. Because Zion is the place where God's blessing is. That's the place where God's pouring out his blessing. You'll see there in the verse, that's the place where the glory of God dwelled in the midst of. And they chose, eh, Babylon's fine. No, it's not fine, is what he's saying to them. Zion is the place where the wall of God's fire is surrounding and protecting. So his first exhortation, come up out of her. The second exhortation, we're actually given in verse 10. We're given the reasons for it in verses 8 and 9. But in verse 10, you'll notice there, it begins and it says, sing and rejoice. Sing and rejoice. And the reason why they can sing and rejoice is verses 8 and 9. So let's read that. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served him. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So they're exhorted to rejoice and sing. And the reason, because of God's promise to protect his people from those that had previously plundered them. I said earlier about Zechariah and Revelation being so closely together Chapter 18 of Zechariah, excuse me, of Revelation, that's the passage which says, come up out of Babylon. Chapter 20 of Revelation is the inauguration of God's kingdom. You may remember earlier I said for side reading, you might want to read Revelation chapter 20. That's the beginning of the millennium. Chapter 18, come out of Babylon. Chapter 20, uh, the beginning of the millennium where Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. And smack dab in the middle of 18 and 20 is... Chapter 19, uh, that wasn't a hard one. Uh, it's, sorry about that, I confused you. Uh, it's chapter 19, and chapter 19 is all about the return of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a glorious chapter. Read that chapter. Spend some time this week in the book of uh, Revelation. But Revelation chapter 19 tells us about the second coming of Jesus. That's the event here that Zechariah is talking about in verse 8, When he says, for thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory, sent me to the nations who plundered you. you. Those words, his glory, that refers to the second coming of Christ. Therefore, the phrase after his glory refers to the period immediately after the second coming of Christ. Chapter 20 of Revelation? The millennium. Very good. All right. Excellent. The millennium. The period immediately after. So Zechariah is talking about the period immediately after the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ in the millennium, where Jesus himself will be seated upon the throne of the King of kings and the Lord of lords and rule over this earth in righteousness and with righteousness for that 1,000-year period of time. I'm giving you a lot of supplemental reading. Psalm chapter 2 would be a great psalm to read and meditate on this week because it gives the glorious return of Christ and the reign of Christ on the earth from the perspective of God the Father. And it says, why do the nations rage in vain? Who do they really think they are? Everything will be set right. It's a little more poetic uh, in Psalm chapter 2, so you might want to read it there. But that's the general gist of it. It's really sweet. So it goes on. It says, now in that day, uh, he says, those who plundered my people 
will be plundered themselves. He says, verse 8, uh, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Behold, I'll shake my hand over them, and they shall be plunder for those who serve them. And so the, the Jews were forced to serve these other nations. Now these other nations will serve the Jews, it goes on to say. The enslavers will become, if you will, the enslaved. Now, that, well, that sounds really encouraging. This is not an anti-Gentile message. Look how it continues on there. Because even as God speaks of the vindication of his people at the expense of those who plundered them, look how it continues. He also speaks of the many nations that will join themselves to the Lord in that day. So 10 says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. All right, that, that makes sense. We would sing and rejoice to that, right? But notice how it goes on. And many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Sing and rejoice about that, he tells them. Many nations refer to the Gentile nations. And so when God came uh, and began to interact with men, he called out Abraham, as you recall. But it wasn't just so Abraham and the Jewish people would know him. It was so that all the worlds would know him. Abraham would be blessed so that everybody else would be blessed. It goes on, verse 12, And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. So there's those two reasons. So exhorted, get out of Babylon and come back here. And then the second exhortation, sing and rejoice. This is what you were created for. This is where you were created to be. Sing and rejoice because that's where I will be in your midst. God promises us as his New Testament children that he'll be in our midst as well, doesn't he? And so the very call for these people to rejoice is a call for you and I to rejoice. Practice the presence of God, and it will change your heart attitude. If you practice the presence of God, if you go into your place of work, and you go into your family life, and you come to church, and, and you go wherever it is you're going to go, you practice God's presence you communicate with him. You may not want to do it verbally. People feel a lot if you're walking down the street just talking to yourself, but people now think you're on your phone, so that's okay. But quietly practice his presence, commune with him, talk to him, try to listen to him, and you'll find your heart attitude changes, and you'll find yourself, so to speak, singing and rejoicing, even if not literally singing and rejoicing. Now, the second thing he says, though, is, Sing and rejoice because many nations will come to me as well. He says in verse 11, many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day. God's desire to bless Israel throughout our study of the Bible, it was never intended to stop with Israel. But it was always intended that his chosen people would be impacted, would be blessed, so that they could be a channel of blessing to other people. We've, we've been talking about this a lot in our study on Wednesday evenings as we're sort of making our way through the history of the Jewish people. We're right now in the book of Kings. And one of the ways that we have used in our study together to describe it is to use a New Testament phrase uh, and sort of apply it to this Old Testament scenario. And that's the phrase, a city upon a hill. And Jesus, as he's talking to his disciples, he says that we are to be a city upon a hill a light that's put up on a basket, not underneath 
that bushel basket, a light for all to see and to be drawn to. Well, that's God's heart for his people. It was his heart for the Jews of old. It's his heart for you and I as well, is that we would be blessed, that we might be a blessing to other people. Here's how Jesus expressed it, that verse in Matthew. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it up on a stand so that it can give light to the entire house and benefit everybody else. I'm going to add that. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, so don't let it be hidden. That's how we respond to that. A city on a hill can't be hidden. We need to stop letting it be hidden, so to speak. Now, I'm not saying, and I, don't, I certainly don't think Jesus is, that he wants us living our lives, doing things for the sole purposes that other people can see what we're doing uh, and sort of praise our name. I think what Jesus is saying here is that we live our lives in such a way that people are drawn to observe our lives, and more importantly and most importantly, that they're drawn to give glory to the God who has so impacted our lives. And so you see how verse 16 ends there, so that they may see your good works, but give glory to your God who is in heaven. And so it's not about me living my life. So people will say, you know, you're such a lovely family. You're such a nice person or whatever. It's about me living my life in such a way so that I can point people back to God. Let me tell you what the Lord has done in my life. Because I wasn't always such a lovely family but God has changed me. Here's how, and he can change you as well. And so as we draw our time to a close, thank you again for not saying amen. <laughs> Let's put the, the meaning of these three visions together because I do think they all run together. Vision number one, the Lord has observed the nations of the earth and how they mistreated his people. Vision number two, the Lord announced the means by which he would discipline those nations for their actions against his people. And now this last vision today, vision number three, he announces the day when his people, and he throws in there a little benefit to us, his people that are both Jews and Gentiles, he announces the day when they will rule and they will reign with him in a period of peace and prosperity and safety in the glorious millennial kingdom. The Lord says in that day, they will be the head, not the tail. That's the quote uh, Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. They will no longer be led around by others, but they will be the head. They will be the leader. They will be restored. So how should we respond to these things? Well, verse 13 tells us, last verse of the chapter. He says, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And those are very sobering words, aren't they? You need to just listen. Be silent, all flesh, he says, before the Lord. For he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. The Lord our God is holy and he is righteous. It's one of the things I appreciated about uh, the prayers that the worship team prayed this morning as they were leading us, was this emphasis on the holiness of God. And how important it is for us to come into his presence, not with our thoughts, our ideas. God, let me explain to you what you need to do. 
but just to come into his presence and sit in silence and let him speak to us. Because he's holy and he is righteous, he is all-knowing, and he is all-powerful. And at the same time, we know that he is patient, and we know that he is merciful, and we, from experience we know that he allows sin, if you will, to have its space for a season. There's no lightning bolts coming out of heaven to deal with us. The danger, however, is to mistakenly come to the conclusion, well, I sinned and God didn't do anything about it, so he must not really care. And to mistake his patience and to mistake his mercy as indifference toward our sin. He's not indifferent toward our sin. He wants to root it out of our lives. He knows the effect that a Babylon can have on us, and so he pleads with us to come out of Babylon because sin must be judged by a holy God. And God doesn't want to judge us. He doesn't want us to experience the consequences of it. Nobody, that he doesn't want anyone to experience the consequences of it. Our Bible teaches, if you will, a great heavenly dilemma. God is completely holy and must judge sin. And God is completely loving and has no desire, if you will, to judge sin, speaking from human terms, so to speak. And so how does the holiness of God, complete and total holiness, how does that match up with the love of God and complete and total love? Well, in one place. And we're going to celebrate it next Saturday evening. It's the incarnation of God himself. God himself taking on human flesh to pay the penalty for our sin. The holiness of God dealt with, sin is judged. The love of God dealt with, so to speak. He pays the price in our stead. These are familiar words, but let's just take a minute and let's think about them. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Most of us stop there. Let's keep reading. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but those who do not believe in him are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We have a problem. God is the solution. And as the writer of the book of Hebrews says, he says this, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God which I think is exactly what verse 13 is trying to encapsulate. Be silent, all flesh, before him. Because anyone that comes to the end of their days, anyone in this room, just because you come here doesn't mean you're saved. It doesn't mean that you're in a right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. I know that. I've been in churches where I sat in churches and I wasn't right with God. And so I imagine there's some of us here today that are not yet right with God through Jesus Christ. And if anybody comes to the end of their days, I'll just tell you right now what's going to happen. You're going to come into the presence of God with your sin. You'll stand before a holy God, and you'll have no answer. And you'll be judged for your sin for all eternity. The difference for those that know Jesus Christ, you will die. You will come into the presence of God, but you will be clothed not in your dirty rags, but in the righteousness of Christ. 
your dirty rags were taken and put on him when he was crucified, and he takes his holiness and righteousness and puts it on you when you placed your faith in him. That's why the cross is so important. There is no Christian faith without the cross of Jesus Christ because that's where the exchange took place, and that's where our righteousness is secure. If you've never come into a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, please make sure before you go today to either come up, say, could you help me with that process and what that's going to look like for me personally? Or you can even ask, I'm sure, the friend that brought you. And if you ask them and they don't know how, come up together. And we will help you through that. Because remember, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Amen? Isn't that great news? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that wonderful reality, Lord. Because as we do come into your presence, Lord, your holiness, it does reveal that we fall short, that we've missed the mark, that we're not perfect. And in this world, we will then look to others, we'll compare ourselves, well, I'm not as bad as that guy, so I guess I'm okay, but you're the one that we need to compare ourselves with. And your holiness requires holiness. And so, Lord, we have come to the end of ourselves. And there's lots of us in this room that can testify of the day and the time that they came to the end of themselves and they cast themselves at your mercy that the righteousness of Christ would become our own, that we might be able to stand into your presence. And Lord, I do pray for those that don't yet know what that looks like, what that means. They're trying to figure it out. I'm grateful for that, Lord. That's your drawing work. Lord, I pray that you would lay by your Holy Spirit just a burden on them not to leave this place until they get right with you. And Lord, any of us here that Christians, but maybe we've, uh, we've stopped walking on that walkway and we know we're drifting backward. Lord, no reason to continue drifting backward. We can start afresh again and just start walking new. That's your great desire for us, Lord. Do that work in our hearts as well, I pray. Amen.